Thank you very much indeed, uh, Isabel, for those kind words. And uh, it's very good to be back with yourself uh, and indeed on this occasion with Brian. Uh, a word of thanks to Liz Carmichael and other colleagues uh, in Oxpeace for putting together this very rich day of lectures and seminars. I think it's been a really worthwhile one and, and I, I would ask you to accompany me in saying a big thank you to all of those who put it together. It's been really great. Uh, and I want to, to thank those who made the presentations too, because you've covered quite a, a diverse range of interventions. Some of these presentations were based on years of work uh, and based on clear fundamental convictions about things. And that's really very important, because without that degree of passion, you'll not stay with this kind of work. As has been said on a number of occasions, it's frequently fairly long-term work. But I like it at this point in the day, uh, when you could be just getting a little bit tired, uh, to try to challenge some of the assumptions that are around uh, in order to perhaps have you go away thinking not just about how positive and worthwhile a lot of the presentations were, but also on how we might need to think a little bit more about how we approach these things. We're not, not in a good place in global terms at the moment. Uh, Isabella referred to the presidential election in the United States. Many people would feel that uh, recent uh, referenda and electoral contests here uh, and the current contests in France, in Germany and other places uh, are presenting to us a rather disturbed picture of the way the world is. And that's right. Arguably, we're possibly descending into a, a, another global conflict initially in cyberspace, but also in other places as well. And I think we need to ask ourselves the question why that's the case. Is it simply that the sorts of things that we've been doing on the question of peace haven't been done energetically enough, or for long enough, or are there some flaws in the way that we think about these things that contribute to it? You see, as a doctor, if I'm giving a treatment to the patient and the patient doesn't get better and I just keep doubling the dose and treating them for longer, I'll end up poisoning the patient rather than curing them. And it's important to pull back and say, wait, did, did I actually get the diagnosis right? We used to say to young doctors that they need to be very careful whenever we were training them. They need to be very careful because doctors have a tendency to make a diagnosis in the first five minutes and spend the next 25 years trying to prove it was the right diagnosis. Whereas it's important to keep asking ourselves, well, wait a minute, have we got it right here? And one of the dangers I think we can fall into as those who want to see a peaceful world and often have a very profound ethical commitment to it, moral commitment, even spiritual commitment to it, is that we would much rather that humanity was different from it actually is. Uh, I think it was Robbie Burns who said, you'll find mankind an uncouth breed and muckle they will grieve you. That there are things about humanity that are difficult, truculent and problematic. And if we simply want to say to ourselves, no, no, it's the system that's the problem, then we'll probably find ourselves not being very successful and sometimes even doing damage. 
what do I mean doing damage? Well, let me give you an example. If one has a group of people who are not well-educated, a whole community perhaps, that has been deprived of the best standards of education, and near to them, or even in the same larger community, are some people who have had a better education, and they're much better off, and they've got better jobs, and they live in better houses and so on. People in that part of the community will say, well, you know, it's not great and I wish it was different, but, you know, in all fairness, they're better educated, they're able to do more things, that's why they earn more. But if you then improve the educational standards of that first group of people, and still they can't get the better jobs for whatever reason, then you make them very, very angry. And I say that out of our own experience at home in Northern Ireland, because if you want to know why things started to break down in the 1960s in Northern Ireland, it wasn't just because there were civil rights marches right across the world, and for us the civil rights was a very specific issue between Protestants and Catholics, though that was important. It was because that was the first generation who had come through from the Catholic population right through to the end of tertiary level education without having had to pay anything at all because the state paid full capital and revenue costs for Catholic schools as well as state schools. And so John Hume and Austin Curry and Seamus Mallon and all those leaders of the civil rights movement and then ultimately the SDLP came through to the end of tertiary level education and still couldn't get through the glass ceiling. And they said, this, this is wrong. This is very wrong. This is not fair. And if you want to see some of the things that were really important in the Arab Spring, which has really not turned out terribly well, then it's because many young people believed, and it was referred to in one of the earlier presentations, that if they could get tertiary level education, if they could really expand and extend themselves, if they could get qualifications, then things would change, and they got them, and they didn't change. And they got very, very angry about that. So you've got to be rather thoughtful about how you make changes because a change in itself good, like expanding the possibilities for education, can actually trigger violent conflict, which of course is not the best way of dealing with things. And so thinking about, about this, you begin to say, well, is it then purely a socioeconomic question? that if there's going to be education, people need to find ways of improving their socioeconomic circumstances. Well, again, whether you look at Northern Ireland or the Middle East, things did not break down when the economic situation was at its worst. In Northern Ireland in the 1960s, the economy was improving at a rate it had never improved at previously. There was better inward investment from the rest of the world than there had ever previously been. It was the fact that when that investment came in, its distribution was unsatisfactory and also because there were other issues around. The Middle East doesn't break down at the greatest level of poverty in the community as a whole. It breaks down after oil starts being uh, produced and refined and, uh, and, and available for sale to the rest of the world. And then people say, well, wait a minute, it's not being distributed fairly. And also, there's something else. Because it's not just a sense of unfairness, 
and the difficulty changing it. But when a whole group of people feels humiliated and disrespected, when they feel that their way of life and their way of thinking and their way of being in the world as a community is disregarded and disrespected, that is far more toxic in terms of people turning to an angry, violent response than socioeconomic deprivation. In fact, it was one of the things that led me to look at this whole question. I was growing up in a part of the world which is not very wealthy, but it certainly wasn't poor. It wasn't perfectly democratic, but it wasn't autocratic. And yet we had an ongoing, intractable, violent political conflict decade after decade, and lots of other parts of the world which were much poorer and had no democracy at all didn't have that problem. And it led me to understand that there are some things that are indeed important, and we've been speaking about them, but there are some things that you always find when there's really intractable, violent political problems. You always find a community or more than one that feels humiliated and disrespected. You always find a body of people that have been treated unfairly. And you always find that any attempts to change that peacefully and democratically have been frustrated. And, and the question you have to ask is, when you try to make a difference with that, how do you intervene? And I think it's important to try to understand the context in which you're intervening. What is, it, what is it really about? What is it that's going on? Why is it like this? And I came to the conclusion that although rationality and education and understanding have taken us a very long way in the last half millennium, they didn't stop us going to war in the 1930s. Germany was the most educated country in the world at that time. And then we had the Second World War, and then people said, you know, what's really important is to make sure that we adopt declarations of human rights and organizations which implement those and ensure, ensure that there's a rule of law that will apply not just domestically but internationally, and we can hold people to those rules. That if we get human rights embedded, that will solve the problem. But the rules-based system around the world is breaking down rather than being built up. And even those countries that adopted declarations of human rights are not always fulfilling them, particularly when those human rights are moved from the straightforward initial first-generation civil rights to social and economic rights. And I've come to the conclusion that it's not so much human rationality and human rights, but human relationships that are really important. Not just the relationships between individual people, but between large groups of people. And the problem about that is that when you talk about relationships of large groups of people, you're talking essentially about politics. Politics is really the psychology of large groups. And one of the things that has struck me as I've listened to things today is the difficulty that we have about addressing some of these political issues. We have, for example, figures, very useful figures indeed, about what's going on in various different countries. The Global Peace Index as it refers to this country, this country, this country, this country. But one of our contributors, I think it was our colleague from DFID, 
pointed out that actually in many of these areas, the boundaries of the state are not the relevant boundaries to speak about. Because it's the region that's actually important, both in terms of why things break down and what you have to do to build them up. And it's not just the region, it's external stakeholders as well. See, in our part of the world, after a number of hundreds of years, and it took us hundreds of years, we're not that bright, it took us hundreds of years to get to the point of how we might resolve the problem, we began to realize it was not going to be resolved by trying to address the relationships of Protestants and Catholics, Unionists and Nationalists in the north of Ireland. That was important, absolutely crucial, but not sufficient. Because there was another set of relationships between North and South. And a very, very important historic set of relationships between Britain and Ireland. And unless those sets of relationships were dealt with, we weren't going to get a resolution. And the British government had to come to the point of saying, we no longer have any selfish, strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland. Our only interest is in the people there finding a peaceful way of living together. And even if it costs us, and it will, that's what we're committed to. Is that something that the United States or the European Union is able to say about the Middle East? We no longer have any selfish, strategic or economic interest. Because if not, what it means is that so far as there continues to be a conflict, it's a conflict that is mediated by the intervention of outsiders as well as the difficulties internally. And in almost all of these intractable circumstances, there are outside stakeholders that are involved in one way or another that contribute to the maintenance of the problem. And so when we're looking at what to do, I think it's incredibly important for us to look all the sets of relationships that are involved, not just within state boundaries, when very often the boundaries of the state aren't even an agreed boundary of the state. The second thing is, we've got to look at the past as well as the present and the hope for future. And someone was mentioning earlier on about the importance of the past. You see, if we have a row, particularly if I say something humiliating or disrespecting to you, and I meet you in 20 years' time, assuming I'm still upright and capable of doing that in 20 years' time, the first thing that you will remember is how bad I made you feel. You may not even remember the circumstances, but you remember how that felt. And you will find it very difficult, not just to forget, but to forgive. And if that's decades in the life of individuals, it's hundreds of years in the lives of communities. So even after you resolve a political problem, even when you get to that point, there are hundreds of years of memory as to what went on. And that has got to be dealt with and digested, and that's very difficult, and that's not resolved simply by political structures or institutional structures or socioeconomic reform or policing and administration of justice or human rights legislation. That's about changes of attitudes, and that's very difficult. Because when we are under existential threat or in a situation of conflict, our brains actually work differently. We're now beginning to see with functional magnetic resonance imaging 
how different parts of the brain are brought in when we come to particular circumstances and we think in different ways. If you're in a stable, peaceful part of the world, then you can think as a relatively, relatively rational actor, basing your judgments on socioeconomic and power benefits. And so when, for example, we base a lot of our thinking about positive peace on the relatively ideal possibilities of justice systems which are just, not just legal, on economic systems which have the resource to make good lives available for everybody, on political structures which are maintained relatively democratically and not in a corrupt fashion, when we live in that, we can scarcely conceive of how it is to live in a circumstance where it is totally different from that. And when you're under existential threat, you tend to think in terms not of socioeconomic benefit, but of rules, right and wrong, yes and no, black and white. If you say to people in Northern Ireland, what about this? Nowadays, they'll say, well, you know, we'll see. Maybe if it benefits us, we'll accept that. But if 10 or 15 years ago you'd said it to them, they would have said, that's the right thing to do. No, we're not going to agree with this. Why? You might benefit from it. Yes, but it's wrong. And many people looked at the peace process. You'll even find people nowadays in Northern Ireland who look at the peace process and you say to them, isn't it wonderful? Economic development. Hardly anybody's killed anymore. Complete change of atmosphere. New possibilities for the future. And many people, especially some younger people, will say yes. And others will say, that's ah, not peace at all. The other fellows haven't given up, you know. They're just hanging about waiting for their, for, for their way to come back again. It's not really peace. So I think we've got to be very, very careful when we talk about negative peace and positive peace. And when we talk about positive peace, exactly what we mean by it. Because there is sometimes the danger of making the perfect the enemy of the good. And it's also important that we see this as a process. Relationships are a process. You don't suddenly find yourself in a relationship, at least if you do, be a bit careful. And you can just as suddenly find yourself out of it. It's something that you've got to work at and develop and grow. And peace processes are like that. They don't start off with being perfectly satisfactory. And they very rarely end up being perfectly satisfactory. But they're a lot better than the way things were. Sometimes people say to me, isn't it great that you've got agreement in Northern Ireland? I say, it's not that we've got agreement. We just have ways of disagreeing with each other without killing each other. And that's a huge step forward. And if we can't have all the other things, we need to be careful that we don't give people expectations of a utopian perfection that cannot be delivered in their lifetime. Because the danger is that if they don't get all of that, they become disenchanted with the good things that they do get. It would be perfectly possible to look at the situation in South Africa that Liz was so much involved with and say, well, look, here's a problem, and here's a problem, and here's a problem. Does that mean we should dismiss what happened in South Africa? Of course not. Does it mean that we continue to work for things to be better? Yes, of course. But not in a way that dismisses the achievements that have been made because it's imperfect humanity that's involved in all of this. It really is all about the question of relationships between large groups of people, not just individuals, though individuals are important. And the psychology of large groups 
is both the same and different from the psychology of individuals. But I would encourage all of you, as you work as academics, and many of you do, and it's really important to understand that something really significant may be happening, I hesitate to say in my lifetime, but in your lifetime and in the lifetime beyond, and it's this. When the world is a relatively stable place, progress tends to be by evolution. You gradually change a theory. You know what it's like. You learn about something and you think, oh, well, that's not quite right. We'll tweak it a little bit this way. And I'll do an experiment and we'll tweak it that way. And gradually it moves forward. And eventually the understanding becomes so complex and so rigged around that there's a necessity for a, a paradigm shift. But paradigm shifts almost never happen in the context of stability. They happen when things are so shaken up that you've got to do something different. You can't just remain the same. We develop new ways of living, new ways of working, and new ways of governing precisely because we had the trauma of the violence at home. And if you look at the world today and you see a worrying situation, dangerous, difficult, problematic, it's all of those things. But it may be that we are living through the time when it becomes possible to go beyond the ways of thinking that we have known before, beyond mere rationality and the dismissal of feelings, beyond the mere here and now and not really understanding the transcendent, going beyond where we've been before to something very new and exciting, as big and significant as what happened at the time of the Enlightenment more than 500 years ago. And during the times when you're feeling a little down, remember that's the possibility that you can make a contribution to. Thank you.